So there is this thing that is hardwired in all of us. When we see or perceive a significant threat to us, our bodies have a built-in response. It's called fight or flight. You know what I'm talking about? Quick poll, okay? Where are my fighters in the room? Yep, Frank, I was guaranteeing you on that one, right? Okay, where are my flighters? Just run, head, go as fast as I can, right? We don't even think. In that situation, we simply react. It's important because in these moments, that quick reaction can make all the difference in the world. But what happens when we take that fight or flight response and apply it to the cultural wars of our day? See, it's no shock that we live in a polarized and a fragmented society. We've got Republicans versus Democrats. This week alone, we had net neutrality versus internet freedom, right? There's always pro-choice, pro-life. That's just a constant one going on. The new tax bill, immigration. I mean, we could spend the whole time just listing all of the things that divide us, that fragment us, that uh, get us uh, uh, going into these us versus them kind of camps. You turn on the news, you scroll through your feed, and there's a constant barrage of, Im- of, uh, of issues and topics that will force you, peg you into one side or another. And when we have this pattern fight or, uh, fight or flight response, some of us will lean in and start fighting, or some of us just turn it off and say, I don't even want to think about it. And for the people of God and a society, we realize this is not our permanent home. And so how do, we faithful, how do we live faithfully as we wait for Jesus to come and deliver us and make all things new? How can we live as God's people in the midst of a society and culture that dismisses or despises us at best or may hate and persecute us at worst? Does God's word have anything to say to his people when they feel defeated, dislocated, and despairing? On our passage today, God writes a letter to his exiled people who are feeling all of those things. And he gives a plan for how they're to live in a culture that is not only different than theirs, but is actually opposed to their culture. Today, we're going to see that waiting with a plan first includes a change in identity from refugees to residents. Second, we're going to see that waiting in God's plan entails us to see those around us, our neighbors, as friends, not as our enemies. And finally, we'll see that though we are presently exiles, our hope and our uh, future is that we are citizens of God's kingdom. Let's open up in Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll have the words on the screens. Um, And I'd love for you to, if you don't own a Bible, you'll see that there's a Bible underneath your seat. That is our gift to you, and you can always follow along in the passage there. Hear these words from Jeremiah. We'll start in verse 1. Chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. Verse 3. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shapen, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
put my seminary degree to work this week on those names. Right off the bat, we're told about a letter that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to those who have survived the war and have been deported and taken into captivity in Babylon to live as exiles. If you remember, we've been talking about this, this, this period of history the last couple of weeks, that long ago the prophets had told of a coming day when the southern kingdom of Judah would be conquered by Babylon. Remember, the northern kingdom had already been conquered by Assyria, and the southern kingdom now, this is around 586 BC, has been conquered, and they've been deported and taken out of the city of Jerusalem. And the prophets told them the reason this was happening is because the Israelites had abandoned the Lord. They were worshiping idols instead of worshiping the one true and living God. And in this letter, the very, at, the, at the outside of this letter, we have this phrase, from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's repeated over and over. And it kind of has this ominous feel to it. See, when you think about it, the whole movement of God's redemption has actually been from Babylon to Jerusalem. The whole of, of redemptive history has been from Babylon to Jerusalem. In fact, Abraham, where our kids are learning about right now, grew up in Babylon. He was told to leave Babylon and go to a land that God would show him. He was called out of Babylon and he grew, uh, the Lord grew one childless family into a nation that were, to be, that were blessed to be a blessing. And in Jerusalem, he established his people, he put his name on the city, and they, they, they set up a temple there to worship him. And it would seem like the flow of sacred history at best is on pause, or at worst, it's rewinding. See, the Babylonians have come in, and they've destroyed their city. They've ransacked the temple, and they've ruined their economy. They've taken all the prominent leaders and they've left and they've, they've deported them to Babylon and they left in the city all the weak, the powerless, the nobodies to defend themselves without resources or leadership to rebuild the city. Babylon had done its worst to Jerusalem. And those who were taken away to Babylon arrived to find this huge city that's hostile to them and brutal. It was natural for people to start wondering, had God given up on them? Was God really all-powerful? I mean, how could he be? Babylon just defeated them. What about all his promises he made? What about his mission to use this people to be a blessing to all nations? And to make matters worse, the Babylonians had no interest in enslaving their conquered enemies. You see, they didn't want to just wipe them off the face of the earth. The way that they oppressed people is that they would uh, capture them and force them into assimilation. What they would do is they'd take the professionals and the best artisans and they'd give them nice jobs. They'd give them access to their education and their goal was to make them one of them. They wanted them to lose their very identity. In fact, in the Bible, we have a book called Daniel. The book of Daniel is actually just a narrative account of, of a group of people, particularly Daniel's life, under Babylonian rule. And we find out that Daniel was given a Babylonian name, a Babylonian education. He had a job in um, Babylon. And their hope was that they would assimilate these people intellectually, socially, culturally, spiritually, so that eventually... The captive community has lost its very identity. 
Now, the last thing you need to know before we dive into the text of the letter is that there were these false prophets rising up. In fact, if you go one chapter earlier in chapter 28, there's a, a man named Hananiah, and he was a false prophet. And he gave a false prophecy to the Israelites. And he came to them and he said, look, guys, I know God said it would be 70 years before we're out of here, but the Lord has spoken to me. It's actually only going to be two years, and then God is going to show up, defeat the Babylonians, and we're out of here. Okay? So just hold on for two years, and we can just stay in our little communities, and it'll be fine. The problem is the Lord never gave that prophecy to Hananiah. He lied to God's people and gave them a false hope. See, there are severe consequences when you speak in the name of God when it's actually not God speaking through you. And in about seven months, that guy just fell dead. Yeah. As a result, the Lord removes Hananiah from the face of the earth. So the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and says, I need you to set the record straight. That's what this letter is all about, reminding them of his promises so that they can set the record straight and eliminate any false hope and self-delusion. It's a letter that spoke into the trauma and the desperation of a people whose entire world has just fallen apart. So let's look at it together, and as we do, we're going to see this first, uh, this first step in God's plan, which is they need to have a new identity. They need to see themselves not as refugees, but as residents. Look at verse 4. Here's what the letter said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, let's stop right there. The letter begins with these words, thus says the Lord. That's important. Make no mistake about it. Jeremiah may be the one writing the letter with his hand, but the words are from God himself. See, so far, we've been under the impression that it was King Nebuchadnezzar who was responsible for sending the Jews into exile. That's what the first part of the letter said. It was that King Nebuchadnezzar had sent them into exile. But at the start of this letter, it says that the God of Israel is the one who sent them from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so if you're paying attention, you're going, wait a minute, who was responsible for exile and captivity? Because on one hand, it says that Nebuchadnezzar sent them into exile. And on the other hand, thus says the Lord, I have sent you into captivity. See, our text today gives us two answers. See, on the one hand, in verse 1, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and took the Israelites captive. But in verses 4, 7, and 14, the Lord says, I am the one who sent them into exile. So who did it? Was it Nebuchadnezzar or God? The answer is yes. It's both. See, on one level, what's plain is Nebuchadnezzar brought terrible violence, suffering, cruelty, and destruction, death, and loss. That Nebuchadnezzar did that. All the work of evil men doing deeds for which they, they themselves are responsible. See, Nebuchadnezzar acted on his own free will and did that, and he is actually morally culpable for what he did to the Israelites. But on another level, God, who is superintending and orchestrating all of human history to fulfill his sovereign purposes in the world, is using Babylon as his chisel. It's his tool of discipline on the hardened hearts of the people of Israel. See, God had not forgotten his people. He had not abandoned them. But he couldn't leave them in their own self-destructive patterns. These patterns where they just go off and do their own thing apart from God. 
See, a good father will always discipline his children. A good father both instructs his children in what leads them to flourishing, and at the same time, a good father will correct self-destroying patterns. That's what God is doing here. That's hard for many of us to accept. So often we want the easy way out. So often we think that God has left us or grown tired of us. And, we, and when we believe that, what we do is we start looking to other things. We, look, we replace him with le- lesser gods. And what this letter is making clear is that God is in control. The Babylonians have not one-upped the Lord. He is in control, and he's working in and through world events to bring about his purposes. Now, this is very important because God wants them to know that all of this is actually according to his plan. They can trust him, and they'll need to trust him for what he's about to say next. Look with me at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The Israelites are being told to accept where they are, not to see this as a temporary, soon-to-be-over kind of thing, but it's going to be something that's actually going to take a lifetime. Later in the letter, God is going to repeat what he's been saying over and over. It'll be 70 years before you guys are sent back home. So until then, you need to live as residents, not refugees. See, if they entertain the false hope that there's going to be an early return, they're going to live forever unsettled. God's plan for them was to settle in and see Babylon as their new home. Now, it wouldn't be their permanent home, but it was their present home where the next few generations would live. And so what God is saying is, prepare. Don't stay in this perpetual state of unrest and idleness. So he uses these words like live, multiply, build, settle in. He's saying start a business, raise a family, coach your kids' sports teams, raise a family, join the PTA, run for office, get to know your neighbors, unpack your bags. Put the pictures on the walls. Don't live out of boxes and suitcases. See, what is God's plan for them in the midst of this tragedy? What are they to do while they wait for their redemption? God is saying, be faithful in the everyday stuff of life. And you may be going, there's nothing real glamorous about that plan. Like, I'm kind of looking for, like, a covert operation. I mean, like, what's God's plan? How are we getting out of here? There's nothing extraordinary or radical about it. But the way God works is there's beauty and transformation in the ordinary. One of the most important things you can do while we wait for our redemption as the sons and daughters of God is simply being faithful with the day in and the day out. Be excellent. In your work. Be kind to your neighbors. For some, that will mean being faithful as a single person. Some, that will mean raising a godly family. And then watch as God takes the ordinary in your life and does something extraordinary through it. This involves a shift in our identity from refugee to resident. 
this is fresh in, uh, in my mind and my family's mind in particular because we just went through this shift pretty recently. In fact, our family moved from Dallas to Boston about um, two years ago. And it was important when we first moved here to have this shift in identity to see Boston as our home, not Texas. Not that we don't miss people in Texas or enjoy going back for a visit. I crave Tex-Mex almost every day, and there's none of that here. But in order for us to be faithfully present where God had us, we had to unpack the boxes. We had to settle our lives here. We needed to buy a home, start new friendships, seek the good of the community around us, eat in the restaurants. Like if you haven't tried the corned beef hash at Joseph's Two's on Bacon Street, you're missing out. You just don't know what life is all about. You need to know if you eat a steak sub at Carl's, you're going to need a plan for a nap afterwards. All right? We needed to vote in the local election. We needed to get up to speed on the controversy in the local Waltham High School uh, building construction. We needed to invest our lives here. In short, we needed to see Waltham as our home. What God is saying, it's good and right for us to eagerly await our redemption. But in the meantime, even though the waiting is hard, God's plan for us is to settle in, believe that he's in control, and trust in his bigger plan. Right now, we are called to be faithfully present as residents, not refugees. Now let's look at verse 7 to see that God's plan is for us to treat our neighbors as friends, not enemies. Look with me at verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In verse 7, the Lord says, seek the welfare of the city. Now this word for welfare here is not handouts. That's not what he's talking about. This word for welfare here is the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace. But it's not simply just this shallow peace, like the absence of conflict. Shalom is this comprehensive peace and wholeness. It's a, it's a prosperity, a safety, a rest, order, happiness, and harmony. It means seeing that all is right in the city, not just a shallow, I'm all set, but a deep sense of wholeness. Now, did God really just tell them to seek the wholeness and the flourishing of their enemies and to pray for Babylon? I mean, if you really enter into the story and realize who these people are, the Israelites who've just been defeated, the, the very idea of praying for the welfare and the benefit of the Babylons is completely nonsensical. I mean, they're the ones who just destroyed their city, killed their friends and family, and sent them to live in a foreign land. This is a radical statement. It's counterintuitive. I mean, how many people before hearing this letter, were plotting their escape? How many of them were plotting their revenge? I mean, this is a tired people. They're war-torn. They're uprooted. They're defeated, beaten. They've seen things you can't unsee. And they're grieving. They're beaten. They're broken. And God says, seek their welfare and pray for them. When I read this this week, I thought, that sounds just like Jesus. 
In Matthew 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, what God is saying is once you've settled into living here as residents, you need to see that you have a mission here. You need to see your neighbors around you as friends, not as your enemies. You're not supposed to spend your days in mourning and sackcloth and ashes, but you're to live with a purpose as my missionaries. And I think it's important that God says, seek their welfare and pray for them. Because you see, they'll never seek the welfare of the city if they hate them and see them as enemies. And prayer becomes this double-edged sword. See, on the one hand, prayer is this means by which they seek the welfare of the city. They ask the God who gives all good things, God, bless them. I'm seeking their welfare. Help me to see where I can be a blessing and serve them. But at the same time, those prayers are meant to transform their own hearts so that they see them as their friends, not as their enemies. See, it's hard to go on hating somebody when you're consistently and compassionately praying for them, right? When you start to pray for your enemies, that prayer will start to soften your heart toward them, and you'll begin to see them as God sees them. Now, some of you might be starting to feel the tension in this passage, and that's a good thing. You're supposed to feel that. See, as we wait in exile under less than ideal conditions, we can easily become defensive. We can self-protect and go on the offensive. Or we can do the opposite, right? Some of us may just detach and become disinterested in the good of the world around us. And so the question is, are we supposed to assimilate to the culture around us? Just fit in and become like one of them? Or are we supposed to build our own separate communities where we close the doors and just kind of pray for them in our own holy huddles? The answer the Bible gives is neither. We're not called to assimilate or to separate. We're called to cultivate. See, assimilation is what the Babylonians wanted. They wanted them to give up their beliefs and their God and lose their distinctiveness. But that's not what God wants for us. We do not become the culture around us. And at the same time, we don't separate and form our own inaccessible tribe where we oppose everything fueled by this anti-vision. That's not what God wants for us either. Believers are not called to go against culture, not with culture, and not even to be really countercultural. We don't condemn culture across the board, nor is it sufficient to merely just critique culture or to copy it or to consume it. Our job as believers is to actually create culture. Here's what I mean. The only way that we can change and influence culture is to create it. We cultivate the very goodness, the truth, and the beauty of Christ into our homes, into our neighborhoods, and into our communities. And when we do that, we actually serve to bless those around us. We start to seek the peace of the city, where we say we want everybody to thrive and flourish. We serve our neighbors because we're for them. See, this isn't assimilation or separation, it's cultivation. Now, this is going to require discernment. This passage does not have pat answers or formulas of what you're supposed to do in every and all situations. We've got to be discerning. But we do have to enter into the conversation. So I was thinking, like, what are some practical things that we can be praying for and seeking in terms of good for Waltham and our surrounding 
cities. So I've got a few here. The first is, we should seek and pray for the economic prosperity of our community. That means supporting local businesses. That means helping the poor when you see someone in need, giving out of your own pockets to help, serving at the community day center where those who don't have shoes and gloves in this bitter cold winter that we would say, at cost to myself, you should have gloves on your hands and shoes on your feet. It means we seek and pray for justice for the oppressed and those who are systematically marginalized in our communities. When you find people who have little or no voice, what it means to seek their peace is to speak up for them. We should seek for and pray for the safety of our city. We should pray that citizens will be kept safe from harm, whether that's violence in our homes or violence on the streets. We should pray for our political leaders. Do we spend more time condemning what, they, what they're proposing or do we spend more time praying for them? That God would give them wisdom and integrity. We should pray for the restoration of virtue to our public offices. We should be praying neighborhood by neighborhood, church by church, business by business, house by house, for the good and the welfare and the peace of our city. Being a good neighbor means shoveling the sidewalk for the neighbor. It means seeing a piece of trash on the ground and picking it up. It means feeding the poor, volunteering at the local schools and the local nonprofits. It means being friendly, greeting people as you pass them by. It means driving safely and helping people when their cars break down. It means doing everything we can to shut down immoral businesses. It means embracing people from every ethnic and racial background. See, what happens when we live in this kind of counterintuitive way? What do you think was happening in Babylon as people started to live that way? Don't you think they'd start to take notice? Don't you think they'd start to ask questions like, why are you serving us? Why are you so kind to us? Why do, you, why do you do what you can to see that our schools thrive and our businesses succeed? Why do you feed me and clothe me when I'm in need? What could possibly be going on in your heart to make you love me as your friend when I am your natural enemy? See, as believers, we have a peace to offer that goes beyond just merely being a good citizen and wanting to see our communities thrive. See, the stark reality is this. Even the most beautiful acts of kindness cannot bring enduring hope and peace. You can do all the things I just talked about, and it would make a good city to live in, right? We'd quickly climb up to be like one of the best communities to live in in the world. But that wouldn't bring lasting peace to the world. The only real basis for lasting shalom is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, our city cannot know true peace until it knows Jesus Christ, who is himself peace. He is our peace precisely because he came to make peace between God and humanity. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That peace is the basis for everything we do in our communities. It's the motivation for why we would go and shovel our neighbor's sidewalk. It's what makes us neighborly, compassionate, and charitable. And when the city finds peace with God, all will be truly well in our cities. Now, before moving on, 
God gives this warning to say, look, there's going to be, a, there's going to be false prophets that come along to try to deceive you. There's going to be lies that even come up in your own heart to say, man, things will never change. I don't want to help. And God gives them a heads up and says, don't believe those lies. Stay focused on the mission I've given you. Stay focused on the message I've given you. This is the plan. This letter challenges them to live as residents, not refugees, as they wait their deliverance. In the meantime, seeking the peace for their brothers and sisters as neighbors, not as enemies. They're to seek their good. And when they do that, their witness would be unexpected and powerful. It would show those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that the God of love is powerful and available to all. Now let's finish up these last couple verses and see that God wants the Israelites to know that their future is secure as citizens of his kingdom not as exiles. Look with me at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The Israelites needed to hear these words. See, they were a people struggling with confidence in God with bitterness and resentment. They needed to hear that God had a plan for them and that his plan for them was secure and that his plan was good. They needed to know that God had not given up on them and that they were still his people. God is initiating grace towards them. You see, they have consistently rebelled against him. Even a casual reading of the Old Testament, a quick skim through will reveal that time and time again, God's people abandon him and seek to serve other gods. No matter how many times God intervenes, his people always relapse into old patterns in old ways. And here, God is moving towards them with gospel grace. What does he say? I will visit you. I will come to you. There's no way you could come to me. I will come to you. I will fulfill my promise and bring you back home. My plans for you are good. They are for your shalom. Now look what he says in verse 12. When God comes, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will, when you seek me with your whole heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And look at this, I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you in to exile. See, God is the one who comes to us, but there is a response required. See, God comes for his people. He will make the way, and now they need to respond. And so what is that response? He says, call to him, pray to him, and seek him with your whole heart. And the promise that God makes to his people is that he will hear them. When you seek him, he will be found. Their hope lies in the fact that God is willing to be found, not in their ability to search. See, God is not hiding where we can't find him. But he is looking for us to seek after him. And when you do, you will find him. And when that happens, their exile will come to an end 
and they will go home as citizens of God's kingdom. They will have the peace their hearts long for and the security and wholeness that comes as being God's children. He says it won't be quick, but it will be certain. One day their oppressor Babylon will fall. They would, Babylon would not have the last word in victory. And in the midst of their judgment, right, the season of waiting as exiles is a season of judgment. But in the midst of that judgment, God offers this message of grace and hope, and it's loud and clear. And he says, for those who will trust in this hope, you can live as residents. You can love your neighbors as friends. You can know that the day will come when your exile will be over. And you know, that same message is for us today. We are living in exile. We are under this heavy hand of sin with an exile that's supposed to end in our death. But no matter how many times you've sinned and gone astray, Jesus says, I have come to you. See, that's what Advent is all about, that Jesus came. He didn't give up on us. How many of you need to hear that grace today? See, you have not outsinned his grace. Are you struggling with confidence in God? Anyone have any bitterness and resentment towards him? Anyone simply think, I don't know, maybe God's forgotten me. Hear these words from Jeremiah today. I know the plans I have for you. For you. He has plans for you. See, God was not content to be God without us. He came to be with us. Do you know that the, one of the names given to Jesus is Emmanuel? And it means God with us. He was not content to be God without us. And through Jesus Christ, he became God with us. He visited us and his plans for us are good. See, death is a far greater enemy than Babylon. It comes for us all. But Jesus came to be with us. And with his final breath, he defeated death once and for all. The question is, how will we respond to him? We need to call to him, pray to him, and seek him with our whole heart. And his promise to us is that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be forgiven their sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Our sin, the Bible says, will be removed as far as the east is from the west and will be reconciled with God, adopted into his family, no longer in exile in the death of our sin, but fully known and fully loved by God. And when that happens, we really can live here as residents engaged in loving our neighbors as friends, not as enemies, seeking the peace of our community because we know our exile here is temporary. Family, our waiting for God doesn't mean we stay idle. His plans for us is that we would live fully engaged in the culture, seeking its peace as we seek the peace that is to come. So let's not err as defensive or detached, but let's engage and cultivate peace as we wait for the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.